Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Across America, low-income, first-generation college students aren't graduating at the same rate as some of their wealthier peers. Coming up, we'll take a closer look at this trend with WAMU reporter Kavitha Cardoza. Her documentary is called Lower Income, Higher Ed. But first, a new American Radio Works documentary explores another phenomenon happening within our nation's education system. Teachers aren't being trained as effectively as they could or should be. We'll consider why this is and what it would take to improve America's teacher training system. Emily Hanford is an education correspondent with American Radio Works. She joins us from the studios of NPR in Washington to talk about this documentary called Teaching Teachers. Emily Hanford, welcome back to Where We Live. Thanks very much for having me. So there's this notion in American culture that teaching is an ability that some people are just born with. But is there something wrong with this with this notion? It is a very deep idea in America that good teachers are somehow born to be great and that teaching isn't really something you learn how to do. It's something you kind of figure out how to do on your own. And the really great teachers have this sort of innate talent. And then the people who are pretty good just figure it out because teaching isn't actually really that hard. I think that's a sort of long-term belief. It's, you know, little kids or it's high school kids. It's not that difficult. It's certainly not treated as a profession like medicine or law that requires extensive training, this sort of deep belief that you're either born to do it and it's not that hard anyway, has led us to not really figure out teacher training very well in the United States and not really treat it. Uh, And actually, maybe it's even the reverse. I think we sort of didn't treat it as something that needed a lot of investment in large part because women were primarily the teachers. And so it was sort of a, a low-status occupation from the beginning that wasn't treated as a profession in the way these some of these others are. And so as a result, I think that in this country, we never really figured out how to teach teachers very well. We've sort of thought it's something that's not teachable. It's interesting. Of course, if we require teachers to have the same amount of training as doctors or lawyers, we'd probably have to pay them like doctors and lawyers, but maybe that's for a different conversation. <laughs> no, but it's all connected. Yeah, it you know, is, it's right? all It's all connected. Yep, absolutely. And I think there was an underinvestment in teacher training from the very beginning in the United States, because when we started this public education system in the United States, we suddenly needed all these teachers. Who was going to, how are we going to pay for this? Well, let's get women. They're pretty cheap. They can do it. They'll do it for a few years, and then they'll go off and have their babies, and then we'll get some more. So it was, from the very beginning, it was low paid, low status, high turnover, not the kind of thing you invest in, like what you're going to do for a doctor or a lawyer. So what does a a traditional teacher prep program look like in the U.S. right now? Right. So in the U.S., there's, I mean, one issue is there's a lot of variety. So we have a lot of teacher prep programs in this country, many more than other countries do. So it's kind of all over the place. But there's sort of two general, typical ways that people become teachers in the United States right now. And one is called traditional teacher preparation. And what that typically means is you go to a college or university for a few semesters. It might be part of your undergraduate degree. It might be part of like a master's degree program. 
you take some courses in teaching methods and some in your content and classroom management and things like that. And then you do teacher uh, student teaching for a semester, and the quality of student teaching is varies widely across the country. You do that for a semester, and then you get certified as a teacher, and you get a job, and you're ready. You're a teacher, and you've done that you know, all in a year or two, two and a half years, something like that. So that's one way that teachers get prepared. There's been a lot of criticism of that system, that there's a sense that, that teacher preparation hasn't been very rigorous. We haven't attracted the sort of best and brightest and smartest uh, people to teacher preparation, and there's some evidence that that's true. And so this has kind of led to an idea that maybe we don't need that kind of university-based teacher preparation. Maybe the key to getting better teachers is to recruit really smart people to sort of raise the status of the profession, get really smart people, give them just a little bit of training, and then get them into the classroom really quickly where they can figure things out because smart people will figure out how to be great teachers. Mm. And so this is where sort of non-traditional teacher preparation programs were born. And I talked to teachers who went to both traditional and non-traditional for this documentary. And what I came away with and what I've come away with from my years of teacher of reporting in schools on education is that when you ask teachers the question, were you prepared to be a teacher, you pretty much get the answer, no, not at all. Mm -hmm. So here's one of the teachers that I talked to. Her name is Jennifer Green, and she went to one of these non-traditional teacher prep programs. I would come in in the morning. I would close the door. I would struggle through the day. I would cry three times a week after my third period, which was my most challenging group of students. I would dust myself off. I would tell my fourth period class that I had terrible allergies, and that's why my eyes were so red. And it's heartbreaking listening to that. In, in some of these stories that, that you tell, Emily, in, in, in this documentary, it really it feels as though these are people being thrown into something that they're just not prepared to do. Yeah, there really there are so many stories of that. And it's heartbreaking from the point of view of the teachers, of these people who are thrown in and really aren't prepared. And it's heartbreaking from the point of view of the students because they end up with these teachers who are in their first year of teaching and they're a wreck. And the kids who are most likely to get first year teachers in the United States are poor kids. So we kind of put all these not very well prepared people out there to sort of figure out teaching on their own. And it has the highest, you know, the biggest impact on low income kids. We're talking with Emily Hanford, who's an education correspondent for American Radio Works, and she's talking about a documentary that they recently released called Teaching Teachers, which we aired on WNPR. You can find out more at AmericanRadioWorks.org. You can also find out more on our website, WNPR.org slash where we live. Uh, you talked to Deborah Ball, dean of uh, the School of Education at the University of Michigan. She says that part of the problem here is that unlike other professions, there's not really a particular set of skills that a teacher is expected to have. Let's listen. Not only many professions, but many skilled trades are able to identify the core set of skills, techniques, knowledge that are at the core of doing that work responsibly to be good enough to be at an entry level. To be a plumber, for example, you need to know how to vent a sanitary drainage system. To be a pilot, you need to know how to do a crosswind approach and landing. And you have to prove you can do these things to get licensed. This is true primarily, at least across occupations and professions where people's safety is at risk. And I do think it's a great concern that we don't, as a culture, appear to think that children are at risk when we don't execute that same kind of responsibility. That's so interesting what she's saying there, too, Emily, because 
early on we hear that uh, skilled trades are able to identify a core set of skills. I thought that this whole idea of a core curriculum for students is to prepare students to know a certain set of things, but we don't have a certain set of things that the teachers are supposed to know to actually teach them? No, we really don't. There really isn't a kind of agreed upon as, you know, the teaching profession really hasn't agreed on a set of skills that you should learn when you're in a teacher preparation program that you should be assessed on that you need to prove you can do before you can get certified to be a teacher. And Deborah Ball, who's the dean of the School of Education at the University of Michigan, she and her colleagues have been working for the past decade or so thinking about this question. Okay, what are the key skills of teaching? Can we figure those out? Can we list them? Can we come up with a set of things that we think all teachers should be should know and be able to do before they go into the classroom? This isn't everything you need to know as a teacher. These are the things you need to know to be a competent first-year beginning teacher. How do you get yourself started? What are those things that you need to know how to do? And one of the terms that's interesting is this idea of high-leverage teaching practices. Is it something like uh, what you mentioned before about how a pilot needs to be able to land in a crosswind? I mean, the really important stuff, this is the thing that you, you absolutely need to know. Absolutely. I mean, so that's what they've been doing at Michigan. They've been trying to come up with a list of things. You know, when they got together at first, they had, you know, dozens. They had 89 or 100 or something like that when they first started. But they thought, oh, that's too much. You know, we need to figure out a way that traditional teacher preparation programs can teach these things in a few semesters. So they did. They came up with this list. And and they're not saying, like, this is the definitive list. In fact, they're revising it. They've actually made some changes to it. But they've tried to figure out what are those things. And so so you can see this, this list of 19 high leverage teaching practices that they've come up with um, on on our website if you want to go check out the documentary. But there are things like analyzing instruction for the purpose of improving it. So this is idea of can you teach teachers how they would think about analyzing their own teaching so they could get better at it? So how could you teach a teacher the set of skills about what they're going to do to get better on the job when they get on the job. But it's also things like leading a whole class discussion and doing that in a productive way. Like, how do you lead a good class discussion? Or how do you elicit and interpret an individual student's thinking? And this is a really big thing at Michigan. They're trying to sort of get inside what goes on when you're teaching. And one of the things they figured out is what you're doing when you're teaching is you're, you're not thinking about what you're thinking. You're thinking about what someone else is thinking. And it's actually a really hard thing to do. Deborah Ball has some great examples of showing people how difficult this is. So they're trying to help their students at Michigan understand how do you, in the moment, on the fly, in the classroom, sort of elicit what a kid is thinking? If a kid's got a math problem in front of them, you know, and, they, and they've come up with a certain answer and it's not the right answer, like, how did they get that answer? What went right or what went wrong in their thinking? Because it's not enough to just tell a kid, that's the wrong answer, or do it again. You have to be like, okay, that's the wrong answer, and here's maybe why. Try this. So it's things like that. They, they're trying to identify these discrete st- skills that they hope are teachable to teachers. Now, another thing that you mentioned earlier is the unfortunate result of the system that we have right now is that sometimes the people who are teaching for the very first time, those first-year teachers, learning all of these skills in the classroom for the first time, they're often teaching some of the poorest kids, some of the kids who need the most instruction. Let's listen to a little bit more from your documentary. Here's, Here's Deborah Ball again from the University of Michigan. We're really eyeing the first year, honestly. We feel like that's our responsibility. We should be accountable for having people leave us who can hit the ground running. Really, the goal is that kids wouldn't have first-year teachers who are completely underprepared. That's, that is our goal. Our goal is that it wouldn't be true anymore, that 
you could just end up with a teacher who's this is her year to have a rec year. So, so what are they doing about this? Because obviously all of the teacher instruction and the new methods that you've just been talking about, that can only go so far. At the end of the day, if you've got someone who is learning to do this for the very first time and they're paired with kids who are perhaps the neediest, it's probably not the best possible match, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, so I think what Deborah was just talking about in that piece of tape is you can't learn everything for any profession or any job in your training for it. You just can't. But you need to learn enough to be competent at it. Like if you're a pilot, you need to know how to fly that airplane. You don't have the thousands of hours of experience that the other pilots have. Or to be a hairdresser, you know, you need to know basic things about different kinds of haircuts and how to be safe with the scissors and how to use the chemicals when you're dyeing someone's hair. I mean, there are basic things that you need to know how to do so you're competent at it and you're not putting anyone at risk you're not you're not risking their safety in any way and so what deborah's argument is we we haven't even really tried to come up with that in the united states for teaching and we need to do that because we need to make sure that at least at the base level that we have this level of competency in our system because her argument and many other people's argument is not because the teachers out there are bad, but we have a lot of not very great teaching going on because we're not responsibly preparing them to go in and be able to do a competent job at it. So you're not going to be a great teacher in your first year. There's lots of research that shows this, but you need to hit the ground running, like she said, and then and then we need to figure out some good ways to help teachers get better once they're on the job. And I think an argument is that we don't actually have a very good system for that in the United States either. Today on the program, we're talking about some big ideas in education in two different public radio documentaries. Right now, we're talking with Emily Hanford. She's an education correspondent with American Radio Works. Her documentary is called Teaching Teachers. You can find out more at AmericanRadioWorks.org. We'll be right back with more after this break, Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today in the program, we're talking about a new American Radio Works documentary, which looks at how teachers are trained in the U.S. Emily Hanford is an education correspondent with American Radio Works. She joins us from the Washington, D.C. headquarters of NPR to talk about the documentary called Teaching Teachers. The way that we think about teaching in the U.S. is not exactly the way other countries think about it. And I know you looked at Japan and how they teach. What's so different about the Japanese approach, Emily? Well, the Japanese, not just in education and teaching, but in general, if you look at Japanese culture and Japanese business, there's a very strong belief in Japan and the idea of continuous improvement. And they have really figured out a way to build this idea into uh, their education system. So teacher preparation is good in Japan. And there's a there are things I think we could learn from the way that Japanese teachers are prepared before they go into the classroom in terms of what we were just talking about and what Deborah Ball wants to do. But there's also really this idea in Japan that that's not really 
the most important part, potentially. If you're going to be a teacher for 20 or 30 years, then you're going to learn a whole lot on the job. So they, we need to create the conditions, and they, and they have a way of doing this in Japan, of creating the conditions to get better on the job. So here's a, I talked to a Japanese teacher named Akihiko Takahashi. He taught in Japan for many, many years. He now lives in the United States. He's a professor. He sort of teaches and uh, studies teaching. Uh, but here he is talking a little bit about the Japanese attitude to sort of initial teacher preparation versus the idea of learning over a lifetime. And Japanese say, they say, after you graduate and then get the certificate, you can be a teacher. However, to become a good teacher, you have to work continuously. Otherwise, you cannot be a good teacher. Essentially saying you're not expected to be a good teacher when you come out with your certificate because how could you be? It's uh, it's something you have to learn over a long period of time, and that's a very different time frame than American teachers are given. Yeah, and I think the point is here, I don't think anyone in the United States necessarily thinks that anyone's going to be like a great teacher after their teacher preparation. But the point is that if you want people to become really great teachers, you have to set up systems in schools so that there's a really deliberate way to help teachers get better. And the argument in the United States is that that really hasn't happened very well. So teachers, do we do have professional development, and you hear about it all the time. And if you have kids in public school, you'll know that school is closed several days a year because there are professional development days. So teachers, typically in the United States, the way it works is you'll go to a workshop for a day. You might go to a summer institute for a week or two. You'll learn some theory. You'll, you'll learn some new part of a curriculum. You'll learn something that might really be great. I mean, it, some of it might not be good, but some of it might feel really good. And then you go back to the classroom and you think, oh, I learned all these new ideas and now I'm going to implement them. But then you get stuck. You're like, oh, wait, what about that? And oh, wait, I tried to do this and that didn't really work. But the person who taught you the workshop isn't there anymore and there's no one to ask the question to. And what teachers tell me is they either they never really figure out how to implement those great ideas and they kind of give up and they just go back to what they were doing before. So there's not kind of built into our system a good way for student, uh, for teachers to learn new things, get feedback on how they're doing those things, and then learn new things. And there's also no way that teachers even get a chance to watch each other teach. So you hear from so many teachers in the United States that they're, they sort of go into their classroom, they shut their door, and they're expected to figure it on their, out on their own, and they rarely get to go into anyone else's classroom, and people rarely come into their classroom. And that is changing a little bit. The, the culture of that is changing a bit in the United States. But this has been the culture of teaching and teacher learning for a long time, is that you're alone in your classroom. So how might this Japanese approach be implemented here in the United States? What would it look like if we looked a little bit more like the Japanese education system? The Japanese actually have this this system. It has a name. It's called lesson study. And uh, they've been doing it for a long time in Japan. Um, and here is how it works. It's, it's a basically a method of continuous improvement. So what happens in Japan, and this happens in virtually all Japanese schools, is that a group of teachers will come together with some sort of problem they want to solve. There's something that they need to teach their kids. Maybe it's something new that they've never taught before. Like an example is climate change. You know, several years ago in Japan, they decided they needed to start teaching kids about climate change. So teachers got together and thought, okay, how are we going to do that? Or it might be, you know, the kids in my class are really struggling with the division of fractions. I, they, they're, they're not getting it. So what, what are we going to do about that? So they come together and they figure out a problem. 
And then they do research on it. What happens in the United States is that we end up so narrowly focused on teachers in this country that we don't really think about teaching. So two of the people I talked to who are both involved in learning about lesson study and helping to bring lesson study to the United States sort of talked about it this way. This is a guy named James Hebert. Uh, He's a researcher at the University of Delaware who helped bring lesson study and an awareness of lesson study to the United States. We're going to hear from him. And then a woman named Catherine Lewis, who observed lesson study for the first time when uh, she was in Japan in the 1990s and has also been involved in bringing uh, this to the United States. And both of them here are talking about this difference between focusing on teachers versus teaching. Everything we do in the U.S. is focused on the effectiveness of the individual. Is this teacher effective? Not are the methods they're using effective and could they use other methods? And I think that's what we miss in U.S. school improvement. We think that one teacher working really hard can change everything. As we run low on time, Emily, I'll just say your documentary really isn't about the politics of teaching and teaching teachers, although that's in every city and town in America. This is a big issue, right? How we make sure that the teachers who are teaching our students are are good enough, are are up to par, whether or not we're we're paying them too much or, or too little. It almost seems though this divide between the American style that you talk about and the the Japanese style, it has something to do with an adversarial relationship, a a notion that we need to hold someone accountable for how students are doing as opposed to focusing on the overall teaching that, that they're getting, the overall learning that they're getting, that accountability is more important than actual quality is is that a fair thing to say given given all that you've you've studied over the years in looking at education in America I think you hit it right on and I think one of the reasons that lesson study is so interesting to many teachers in the United States and there are a number of teachers in the United States who are trying this but I think it is because it is a profound kind of flip it it, it isn't as much about this idea of like keeping a teacher accountable it's a more um it's kind of a more positive a view on the whole thing. Uh, it, it more takes this idea that uh, together teachers can learn to be good, that they're sort of constructive process, that they can improve their teaching. And there, there's much more of an attitude, not of how can we get all the best teachers in our school and get rid of the worst teachers, but how can we as a school improve the teaching overall so that all the kids in this school are getting good teaching. And I think one of the problems with the way we focus on individual teachers in the United States is that kids are going from classroom to classroom in a lot of schools and learning from a lot of different teachers. So you have to improve the teaching across the whole school if you really want to improve academic outcomes for kids. Just improving their math teacher and not improving the teaching in the other math classes or in the other classes they go to isn't actually going to help that much. How did the Japanese learn how to do this? How did the Japanese come up with this great uh, this great lesson study idea? Well, it is so ironic because, in fact, it appears that this came from the United States. So way back in the late 1800s when the Japanese were first implementing a public education system, they needed to figure out how to teach their teachers how to teach. And so over here in the United States, we had a public education system and we knew how to do that. So they came over here and um, went to U.S. education schools. And at that time, in the late 1800s, there was this popular method that was called the criticism lesson. It's a lot like lesson study where uh, teachers would uh, put together a lesson and teach it and other teachers would observe and then they'd all give feedback and they would sort of collectively improve the lesson plan together. So Japanese teachers came over here, they learned this, and they 
kept it going in Japan. And it, it's not clear why, but it sort of went away in the United States. And I think it actually has to do with the fact that kind of culturally there is this deeper belief in continuous improvement in Japan. And here we do have this very deep belief in sort of the individual. So we kind of get, I would say, a little bit stuck on these sort of policies and ideas that think very much about the what the individual is doing and less about um, sort of how to improve teaching overall. The fascinating documentary is Teaching Teachers. It's from American Radio Works. And Emily Hanford is an education correspondent who's been working on these subjects for years. If you want to find out more, go to AmericanRadioWorks.org. Emily, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It was fun. Thanks. Coming up, we'll look at why more low-income students aren't graduating from college. It's the subject of another new documentary from WAMU's Kavitha Cardoza. I'm John Dankosky, and this is Where We Live. Today we're talking about education in America and two documentaries that dig into underreported topics in a field that's often defined by stories about standardized testing, charter schools, graduation rates, and politics. We just heard about the ways we teach teachers in America and how the neediest students are often given the least prepared teachers. But this is just one of many challenges facing low-income students. Kavitha Cardoza, education reporter for station WAMU, looked into how many urban schools are focusing on getting kids into college but not tracking their success once they get there. Her documentary, Lower Income, Higher Ed, is a special production of WAMU and Public Radio International. It will air Sunday, October 11th at 7 p.m. on Essential Radio here on WNPR. Kavitha Cardoza, welcome back to Where We Live. Thank you so much for having me, John. Uh, your documentary, Lower Income, Higher Ed, highlights a big problem in the U.S. Uh, a large number of low-income students aren't finishing college. Tell us first just how big an issue this is. It's really huge, John, I discovered. It just kind of flies under the radar because often we act and we talk about getting into college as being the final step rather than completing college. So uh, some estimates are as low as just one low-income student out of every four actually completes. And this becomes a real problem because often when they drop out, they not just feel like a failure, but um, these students also have college loans to repay. Another statistic that sort of strikes you is that about half of the young white people in the U.S. have a bachelor's degree, but for African-Americans, it's about half that rate. Hispanics, it's about a third of that number. And so you really see what happens here. If, If people aren't going through college and actually getting a degree, it's setting back a large portion of the population. Absolutely. And then so you're talking about earnings, you're talking about taxes. People who have college degrees have better health. They're more likely to volunteer, to vote. I mean, this personal and societal implications are huge. So why is this happening, do you think? I've spoken to so many researchers about this, John, and I think one of the issues is that it just wasn't noticed Like there started being a lot of research in this area in the last four or five years. I spoke to Harold Levy, who used to be the New York City Schools Chancellor. He now works for a foundation and he convened a group of uh, 15 college presidents. And he said none of them even realized this was a problem. And that happened last year. So I think it's just something we haven't paid enough attention to. Like any good documentary, your your story introduces us to people who who take us through this problem that we're just all starting to notice. And it follows the story of a young man named Christopher Feaster. What can you tell us about Christopher? 
I met him when he was 15, John. He was a high school senior, and I was doing a story on kids who have overcome tremendous challenges to be really successful. And this child was homeless. He talked about not having soap to have a shower. He talked about not being able to wash his socks and his underwear because he lived in a homeless shelter. At the same time, he was this academic superstar. Stacks and stacks of awards, certificates, recognition. He was very involved in his high school clubs, mentoring, national contests. And when he won $200,000 in scholarships for college, I mean, I was cheering as much as anyone else. Hmm. It's $200,000 to attend a hospitality business program. And this was at, at Michigan State University. The, the realities of college, though, were, were a little bit of a shock to him. Hmm? They were. I mean, he talks about the first night. Let's actually listen to a clip from the documentary, John, about when Christopher reached college the first night. My first night, that was when the reality of the situation hit me. And I said, I am on my own. Whoa. It was, as Christopher puts it, an insanely big change. I already went in with everyone having these, like, titanical expectations. And I'm just like, I don't know if I can do that. I don't know. That, that, that's a lot. I don't know. My goodness, you can just hear in his voice. So there's two things in there that I hear, uh, Kavitha. One is the reality of the situation hitting this notion that, like a lot of young people going to school for the first time, he's really on his own. And that's something that all students have to face. But then he also has, as he puts it, these titanical expectations. People expect so much of him. So he's under even a lot more pressure than, than many other students starting their first year. Absolutely. John, I'm so glad you made that point, that college is a huge transition for any student, regardless of income. The challenge is, I think, low-income students are more likely to doubt themselves. I mean, I think about when I was in college, if a friend of mine got a bad grade, he or she was much more likely to say, oh, the professor was rubbish. (laughs) You know, whereas often with a low-income student, they kind of internalize, they say, they feel, I don't belong here. Everyone else knows more. I'm not supposed to be here. You know, the kind of imposter syndrome. Added to that, Christopher was worried about his mother, who was no longer in a homeless shelter, but she was in subsidized housing and struggling to pay her bills to get hot water and to pay rent. Often low-income students don't know how to advocate for themselves, and because they're first generation, often their parents don't know how to advocate for themselves. It's just a combination that makes it really, really challenging. We're talking on the program today with Kavitha Cardoza. She's an education reporter for WAMU in Washington, D.C. Her documentary called Lower Income, Higher Ed is a special production of WAMU and Public Radio International, and this is where we live. Of course, sadly, the pressures of college and a number of other things forced Christopher to drop out of school. What happened to him? He actually dropped out after the first um, the first year. He lost all his scholarship money. And he came back to D.C. He was very depressed, very upset, felt like a failure, kind of withdrew into himself and is now working as a host at a restaurant. In your documentary, you talk about colleges like uh, Michigan State University, uh, where Christopher went for this one year, that are trying to improve their graduation rates, actually trying to put in place some of the supports that we've been talking about already. What what are they doing? What are schools doing to uh, to try to improve this problem? 
So it can be anything, John, from kind of creating small groups. So when a student comes to campus, it's not like 38,000 students and you're just, you feel like a no one. They create small groups that, you know, you start together and maybe you take classes with that cohort through the year. So you feel like you know a group of people. Some have faculty advisors that will meet the same group of, say, 20 kids every week um, so they don't feel as alone. Some colleges are inviting first-generation low-income students to come during the summer and spend two or three weeks on campus or to start college a week early so they kind of get used to campus. They are told where the resources are, shown where all the resources are. Sometimes it can be, I know this is really popular in a number of colleges, they're starting to use data, so run data reports to see which of the students at risk and then do what's called intrusive advising, which is they reach out individually to students. So we know students who haven't declared a major after a few years are at risk of dropping out. We know students who owe money to the university and don't re-enroll are at risk of dropping out. We know students who withdraw from a class before they fail the class are at risk of dropping out. So colleges, like I, I visited one, Virginia Commonwealth University, actually reaches out to students before they drop out. Mm. And we actually heard in your documentary from uh, someone at Michigan State University, Amy Radford Pop, assistant director for residential business program community there. Uh, she said that the school has more support for students, including what she calls intentional outreach. Let's listen. We've ramped up training and preparing the folks to deal with these types of issues that are not just academic, but some of the emotional things that are going on for students. Another thing that we now have is a success coach. Oh, it's an upper-class junior or senior level student role. You just check in, how's things going? You know, you never know. You never know who's going to have that impact. It's interesting. Some of these interventions, uh, Kavitha, that you're hearing about here in your documentary in college are some of the same things that I know you've probably observed, I know I have in covering K-12 through education at the high school level with more data available about individual students. It seems to be a trend in education where uh, whether it's school districts or universities are able to put in place some sort of outreach to really get at the needs of individual students. Obviously, you're not going to reach everyone, but it seems like it must be some sort of a support, some sort of a help, right? Absolutely. And I think, um, John, it kind of we're seeing the same trend. You're exactly right as in K through 12, which is you need to reach these students individually. You also spoke to Monica Gray, who, who works with the College Success Foundation in D.C. She told you that low income students are often apprehensive when it comes to using resources like a professor's office hours. I want to I hear some of this. You know that the students who want to get the best grades in class are always at the professor's office hours. But from the high school model, particularly the sort of high school model that, you know, a lot of our students come from, getting help from the teacher means that you're not doing well academically or that you're in trouble or it has a negative connotation. This is fascinating, Kavitha. Could you talk this through a little bit? Because you mentioned something like this earlier where often low-income students will internalize a problem they're having in school and say, it's my fault, whereas a student who comes from a wealthier background might be quick to say, well, it was the professor who didn't do a very good job. A similar thing is happening here. Essentially, we're hearing that higher-income students are ready to sit there and advocate for themselves and spend time in the professor's office, and maybe lower-income students aren't. 
low-income students often feel there's a huge power differential. And imagine, John, they're, they're coming to campus. They're struggling not just with money and with everything, you know, the, the dorm rooms. Uh, I visited Michigan State, which is not like um, an Ivy League college. And they had like sushi being served. And, you know, it's a whole different world from what these kids have come from. Added to that, one girl I interviewed said, I felt like everyone else who was not low-income first generation had a Dora the Explorer magic backpack. And I said, what do you mean by that? She said they had all these resources and experiences. So, for example, we would be talking about African countries in a political science class. And there were students who had visited Zimbabwe as, you know, ninth graders. Or we would talk, be talking about literature and um, someone would just quote entire sonnets from Shakespeare. And these kids were just astounded. And so for, they just don't feel worthy. And so to show them that in college or to teach them that in college visiting the professor is not this scary bad thing, you know, someone has to do it. Otherwise, they just don't know. There's also mental health. For example, Christopher was homeless for so many years. He didn't realize he had even gone through this kind of trauma. You know, for him, it was just like, this is what I went through. Like, this was my experience. And he was in a school with a lot of other students who were struggling. So he, until he went to Michigan or even after that, he didn't realize this was traumatic. So he didn't even know he had to go and see someone or he could advocate for himself or even that he could talk to professors about that. And of course, as we've been hearing about in so many sectors of life, uh, mental health has such a stigma attached to it. And if you don't know mm-hmm. that p- potentially mental health is, is an issue, even if there are resources on campus, and I'm sure at a big uh, Big Ten school like Michigan State, there are plenty of mental health resources. If you don't know that's something to seek out, how would you ever seek it out, right? Absolutely. I mean, she was talking. Um, Monica Gray, who you played a clip from, had worked at a very wealthy university. And she said, you know, those kids, they come before the first day. They have sent me emails with a list of their medications, with doctor's letters, with all kinds of accommodations they need. She said the difference is the kids I work with now just don't know how to do that. So I want to get to one of the problems that you highlight, and I think this is one of the most fascinating things. Obviously, if we're not paying attention, close enough attention at least, to the issue of lower-income kids getting into school but then not finishing school, I think a fascinating piece of this is that often low-income students just aren't encouraged to apply to more selective schools, uh, which might do a better job advising them through their academic careers. It might give them a leg up if they're able to make it through those four years. Could you talk about what you found? Because I think that this is a really underreported and a very fascinating uh, statistic here. Carolyn Hoxby, who's a professor with Stanford University, had done this like groundbreaking paper a few years ago where she talked about low-income, high-achieving students who are not encouraged to apply to colleges where you know, that they've got the grades for. So they might go, for example, to the local community college instead of going to Harvard and Yale. uh, The difference is Harvard and Yale have a lot of resources for these kids. I mean, she said it's almost difficult to drop out of very selective colleges. Often they would be, they would get a full ride scholarship at those universities. But They go to schools where their guidance counselors um, might not know about how eligible they are. They've not heard of these colleges. I mean, a lot of us have heard about colleges from our parents. If their parents haven't gone to school, then they've not. um, So they might look up the website and see the cost of one year and think, oh, my gosh, like I'm never going to be able to afford that. And then they don't even apply. Whereas in reality, they might get a full ride over there. 
Mm. And some of the statistics that, that we pulled here, actually, for, for universities that uh, the people in our listening audience might, might well know, Central Connecticut State University, say, this is a place that I taught for three years as part of the state university system. The 2013 six-year graduation rates for CCSU break down something like this. For white students, it's a little bit more than half, 53%. For Asian students, it's about 55%. For Latino students, it's about 40%. And for black students, it's about 46%. Compare that to Connecticut College, which is is an exclusive college. It's a very expensive, a lovely private college along the the waterfront in New London. Now, Connecticut College, about 82% of white students graduate. Asian students graduated 74%, Latino students 87%, and black students 88%. Kavitha, it backs up your statistics here. Basically, if you go to one of these more exclusive schools, yes, there may be more pressure. Yes, it may look more expensive on paper, but... If you have the grades, it might be a much better path for you to get through school. Absolutely. Now they really there's a, a national effort to really encourage guidance counselors and students to send them personalized information about selective colleges that they are eligible for. I mean, we're not talking, John, about kids who are getting in and they're not smart. These are super smart kids. The only difference is that they're low income. Talk about a program that Virginia Commonwealth University is doing with D.C. public schools uh, to work together. So this is interesting, and this kind of bridges our two worlds, John, between the K-12 through system and higher education. D.C. public schools found that they were sending their kids off, and we have a high percentage of low-income kids, and they were dropping out. So now they're starting what some of the charter schools had started a few years ago, which is following their students through college. So they're reaching out to, say, Virginia Commonwealth University or George Mason University officials and saying, show us your data. When are the kids kind of floundering? What are the subjects they're they're struggling in? So say math is like one of these subjects that a lot of students drop out because of. They just can't clear that requirement. Well, if these kids are struggling and struggling, then maybe we need to back map it to our high school math class and say, you know what, maybe we need to change the instruction or we need to do things differently because our kids need to get into college ready to take math. So that was really interesting. They're doing things. So, for example, middle school college tours um, instead of waiting till high school, dual enrollment. This year, all our high schools will allow students to take classes on a college campus that way um, for free. That way they can see what it's like on a college campus and be comfortable while they're still in their safe space at home and in school. So if they think, oh my God, this is odd or I don't belong here. They've got people they've known for many years from their school and their family able to say, you know what? Everyone feels like that. It's fine. They're also, like I said, sharing information. So, for example, if a student has a high rate of absenteeism in high school, the chances are they might have a high rate of absenteeism in college. So D.C. public schools are sharing these data, sharing this data with colleges and saying, you know what, just flag this on your records. And if these kids are not coming to class, then maybe you need to reach out to them. Yeah, let's listen to uh, this is Aaron Bebo from uh the D.C. Public Schools Deputy Chief of College and Career Education uh, says following their graduates through college is very, very important. We're setting up meetings with their leadership and we're saying we want to see your data on how our students are doing. Where are they failing? And we are going to channel that back to the teacher level at the high schools to say, here's this disconnect. Mm. 
it's such a big connection to make, Kavitha. I mean, obviously, covering education, K through 12, you, you talk an awful lot about the pressures the teachers are under, but maybe this is the sort of pressure that a lot of them need, is really understanding what students need to succeed at that next level. So many teachers are, are being forced to teach to somewhat arbitrary tests, but this is the real test, right? Are these kids getting ready to go to school and actually graduate after four years, right? I couldn't agree more with you, John. I mean, it's not enough to say the goal is for these kids to get a high school diploma. I mean, it's better than than dropping out of high school. But really, nowadays, what does a high school diploma get you? Not a lot. And if our goal of our K-12 through education, we say, is to get kids successful in college or a career, well, then we need to look beyond just 12th grade. You're talking in a documentary about an organization called the Posse Foundation, which sends small groups of low-income students to college together. How effective is that approach? It's been very effective. They have a graduation rate, they say, of 90%. And part of what they do, John, which seems so simple but works so well, is that they send kids in a posse. You know, a group of 10 kids usually go to college together, and they're from the same city, um, so they know each other well. They start meeting almost a year the year of their high school as high school seniors, so almost a full year before they actually go to college. And they're given help with applications. They're given coaching and how to present themselves. They have conversations about race and class, you know, things that they might encounter on a college campus, like Christopher was African-American from an urban school district going to Michigan State, which is mostly white. And they're taught to kind of negotiate those spaces and so that has been very helpful. They also have a, it's very structured and they have a lot of support on campus. So a tenured faculty meets with them every single week. Posse staff from their home cities visit them several times during the semesters to make sure they're on track. They have access, college professors and posse staff talk to each other and they have access to information about the student, which really helps kind of make those connections. They have to meet with professors to ask about their mid-semester grade to, you know, so they've kind of made it a requirement that these mostly low-income students, first-generation students, have to follow. Christopher, the young man we spoke of who you profile in this documentary, he applied to Posse. What happened? He was actually a finalist, and the group he was with in D.C. did not have a partnership with a college that offered hospitality. And he had gone to a charter school which had a focus in hospitality. And so he just felt that, you know, he's going to withdraw his name, take himself out of the running, and then apply to Michigan State, which has a very highly um, thought of hospitality business program. Mm. Do do you think – go ahead, please. I, I, I know what you were going to ask, John. It was, do you think he would have succeeded? I have no doubt in my mind that he would still be in college. Mm. I guess I'll ask you the the last thing is, what, what do you think uh, Christopher's prospects are of, of getting back to school, of, of deciding whether or not it's Michigan State or someplace else that he's going to be able to get through four years of college and get that very important bachelor's degree? I think he really, really wants to go back to college. I think the challenge now John is money, something he didn't have to think of in the past. So there's a part in the documentary was when his mother realized he had lost the $200,000 in scholarship money. And she was like, why? Why? It's just opportunity in the trash. And poor Christopher, I mean, he was just 17 and he was just overwhelmed by college 
And now it's going to be so much harder. He reapplied to Michigan State. He got readmission. The challenge is now he's got to take out loans or he's got to, which makes it just that much harder. There's this heartbreaking. It was so upsetting to me because I, when he told me he got readmission, I was like, that's wonderful, Christopher. And he's like, Kavitha, I, I can't take out loans that are that big. And so right now it's not in the cards, but I'm really, really hoping he does. He's too smart and too sweet and too thoughtful for his story to end here. Mm. A last thing I'll ask you is because you've been covering issues like this and, and meeting a lot of high schoolers and teachers and administrators over the years, I'm sure that every time you, you tell stories like this, there are some takeaways that, that you have. I guess I'm wondering if anything about reporting this story of how low-income students often just aren't making it through the college that they've dreamed to go to for so long. If there's anything about this story that felt new to you or that that really taught you something completely different about the education system that you cover every day. I think how underreported something as basic as college graduation rates is, John. And I also saw how disproportionately the low-income students were bearing the burden. So I really struggled to find meaning in this story because it just seemed so depressing And I think it was that schools and colleges, like as systems, need to take more responsibility for these students because everyone I met, I want to make this clear, every administrator and educator I met really wanted to help these students. The challenge is that resources are few and they've got a lot of, you know, work on their plates. But every year they also get an additional chance or an extra chance or a new chance to help a new batch of students. Whereas Christopher, once he dropped out, I mean, he's bearing the price every single day on his feet, eight hours. You know, the day I went to meet him, he had not eaten for nine hours. And when he, if he worked a double shift, they would get, let him eat something off the children's menu. I mean, he really has a tough life. And he was so young when he, he made this decision. Kavitha Cardoza is education reporter for WAMU in Washington. Her documentary is called Lower Income, Higher Ed. It's a special production of WAMU and Public Radio International. Kavitha, thank you once again for the documentary. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Always a pleasure, John. Where We Live is produced by Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our executive producer is Katie Talarski. I'm John Dankosky. This is Where We Live.